welcome to Two Boomer Women. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. I've been talking with Boomer women for almost a decade now. (laughs) Well, I guess I've been talking to Boomer women all my adult life. Uh, Reinventing myself several times along the way, though, but always focused on us, Boomer women. With this incarnation of Two Boomer Women, I'll be interviewing other women who have a message of interest for our demographic. If you want to hear about or learn about something specific, let me know and I'll find someone who understands us to talk about it. There's a contact page at twoboomerwomen.com. If you want to be a guest on Two Boomer Women, bring it on. There's an application form at the website, too. Finally, this show is all about conversation. We women know its value. We know how to do it and we must perpetuate the art form. So, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to the Two Boomer Women Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. My guest today has a CV that would make most people gasp and say, whoa. A successful songwriter, musician, singer, writer. I saw somewhere that her songs have appeared on more than 100 million records worldwide. And now a clothing designer. I checked out that website, and the styles are beautiful, including the magic pant. Most of the women I know would be really interested in that line. I'm sure we'll get to know more about Franny as we go along, but I'm going to start in 2013, when the lives of Franny and her husband of 25 years, at that point in time, were upended. Some of you will identify with Franny's story. Some of you will have it in your future. Franny Gold, welcome to the Two Boomer Women podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Franny, you and Paul have been married for 34 years now, but take us back to 2013, if you don't mind, and tell our listeners about that year in your life. Well, 2013, um, actually, it started a bit earlier. 2013 was when my husband was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. But I had been seeing some changes Mm -hmm. along the way. I always remember the very first time we were in New York for his mother's birthday, which was always at Christmas time. Her birthday was on the 28th. And we were having brunch with our son. And uh, I looked around and I noticed that her gift wasn't with us. And he had been kind of in charge of that at the hotel. And I said, where's your mom's gift? And he went, oh, I must have forgotten it. Forgotten it. So he said, why don't we order? By the time I get back, the food will be here. I'll run to the hotel, bring the gift. He came back from the hotel, had no idea why he went. The gift wasn't there. It was very peculiar behavior for him. And I guess that was really the first time. It it wasn't alarming to me. It was just peculiar. Like I, I wondered like, why that's weird for my husband, weird behavior. So I remember writing it down, which was unusual. I wrote it in my phone in my notes. And following that, fast forward, we got home. Uh, This is a few weeks later. And I noticed we were going to dinner to a place that we had frequented many, many times. And uh, we got to a stop sign 
and he paused. And I said, is everything okay? And he said, which, am I turning left or right? That was, I said something to myself, something seriously wrong. Because he was a phenomenal driver, great direction person, much better than me. And um, I started really noticing things little by little, small things, but not so small things. I uh, emailed his doctor and asked her, you know, I said, is this unusual? I know he had, you know, the music business had been changing a bit. And I thought, well, maybe he's a little depressed. And she said, you should order a book on the, uh, on Amazon called the memory Bible. I said, she said, I think you're overreacting here. I think you should read that book and get a better take on what's going on. I did order the book. I looked through it. I didn't find what I was looking for. And more and more, we were having these little episodes um, of forgetfulness. And um, I was very insistent with the doctor, but I felt like she wasn't taking me seriously. So I finally called a friend of mine who was a neurologist and asked if he would see us. And that was really it. We went to that appointment and it was glaringly obvious that there was something seriously wrong. So great that you tuned into those moments because so many people as they're sort of entering that that stage of mental decline, they, they come up with all sorts of little workarounds. Oh, he did. Yes. Well, he did. Because every time I would mention something like, really? Do you don't remember? Oh, only kidding. Only kidding. That was the big thing. Only kidding. And, you know, only kidding became a daily thing. Now, you mentioned your son. He must have been pretty young when the diagnosis came in. Has he understood this journey? You know, I think, I mean, I've been very open and, and I'll tell you now my son sends me articles, mom, did you see this? Did you see that? You know, but at the time, yeah, I think for any kid, you know, losing your parent in whichever way that might be is not easy, but we were very open, very honest about everything that was going on. I think that's the best way to be. Um, didn't pull any punches, explained everything thoroughly. Right. Now, and, well, I was just going to say that most of our listeners know that I have a background in elder care, dementia care. When people are receive that diagnosis of Alzheimer's or pretty much any dementia, the reactions are all over the map. May I ask about your and Paul's reactions to the actual diagnosis? You know, the day that we got, as as my memory will serve me, the day that we got the diagnosis, I don't think either of us really knew exactly what Alzheimer's meant, Mm -hmm. so to speak. I'd heard the word. I knew there were people 
in my life somewhere that had mentioned it or maybe even been a part of that journey. But it wasn't like, oh, my God, we've been handed a death sentence. Paul, who's a very up positive person, I think took it as, okay, what's next? What do we have to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? How are we going to fight this? And then, you know, we both learned quite a bit about it. I, uh, within, I'm, I'm a fixer. I like to get things like, okay, let's get this fixed and, and done. And I remember calling our local chapter of the uh, Alzheimer's Association. And they said that they had a young onset group starting that it was difficult because they could not get enough people with young onset and they were waiting to get uh, enough to start a group. And that ended up happening probably, I'm going to say a couple months after the diagnosis, that was invaluable being part of that group. Yeah. I think especially just the fact that other early onset people you know, because you have the same struggles. I also, I still work with elderly people. And if they forget something, they sort of go like, oh, my goodness, like, am I getting dementia? Or, you know, they a bit more of a panic reaction. Whereas when you're younger, it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot something. Big deal. Exactly. So exactly. It's, yeah. it's that bigger leap into the diagnosis. Exactly. But this group was sensational. It was I still have a great love for all the people in the group and I've kept in touch with some of them. Um, Unfortunately, many of the spouses of uh, some of the people in the group have passed away, but it was such a wonderful support group. And, and because everybody's going through the same thing and relates to you, which is the hardest thing I think going through this, it's such an isolating disease it it helps a lot. Yeah. I've often said that the early days of a diagnosis of dementia are often harder on the person with the diagnosis. But as time goes by, it becomes all sorts of varieties of excruciating for the family around them and the friends. Absolutely. Yeah. I I never felt like Paul... Um, I think he was in a, what I'd call a healthy denial. I think we both were, but especially him. And um, he, did, he, he and I both, we decided that he would stay on his schedule. And if he needed help, I would hire somebody to drive him or go with him somewhere during the day if I was working but I was a basket case. I just, I couldn't stop crying. I was so devastated. Well, you're losing someone who's still there, but, but you've lost them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, through, exactly. through no, no choices. No choices were made. Right. But they right. drift away from you. Yeah. Yeah. So you finally placed them in a memory care unit. Can you tell many us years this? later, many years later. Okay, because I was going to just sort of say it's a, it's a fine line between his safety 
the family's abilities to accommodate the changing behaviors, but also getting him placed while he still has the ability to adjust to those new surroundings. Yeah, he was good for a very, very long time. Very long time. We were very lucky. So let's say from 2013 to 20... When did COVID start? March of 2020? <laughs> That's Isn't that just burned into everybody's brain? <laughs> yes, exactly. So basically till March of 2020, Paul was living at home and he was leading a, even though he had been declining slowly, I kept him on an insane schedule. People couldn't believe it. He would get up at 7.30. I had somebody pick him up at 8.15. He would go, he had gone to yoga for years and, you know, 26 years altogether, including the time he had uh, his diagnosis, six days a week. So he was going to yoga in the morning. Then um, eventually I needed someone to actually go in the class with him, not just drop him off, but sort of be a partner to help him get through the class. And of course, everyone in the class loved him and knew him from all those years. So they were so accommodating and loving and supportive and wonderful. So he did that. Then he'd go to lunch. He'd go to a museum. He'd go to a political rally downtown. He'd go to the beach. He, He loved surfing. He would go watch the surfers. So every day from 8.30 8.30 when he was picked up till, or 8.15 till 4.30, 5 o'clock, he was gone. Yeah. Like a work day. Yeah. And then we would have dinner together. So we sort of led this as regular a life as we could until COVID. Which is amazing because, you know, so often... Like, like you've said that you, you cried so much and, and oftentimes the, the closest families will be so worried that they almost cloister them, the, the person with the diagnosis. Yeah. And I'm sure the fact that you just sort of kept him going and all those things he'd always done. And then when those things he'd always done became a little bit less able to, to have someone go along with him. Um, and perhaps, I, I guess where I'm going with this is perhaps we need to give our circle more credit for their ability to handle changes as well. Oh, yeah. I was very much of the belief that the, the more I kept him going and doing what he loved doing, that he would sort of rise to the occasion, whether I was right or wrong, it did work. So I guess I was right. Um, Then when COVID hit, uh, one of the things I had been doing as he'd been declining, I found a day program and I thought this might be a good way to introduce memory care because it was at a memory care facility and they had a program that ran from 9 a.m to 6 p.m and you could bring your loved one and uh and they just did all the participated in whatever was going on that day at the facility 
So I brought him there a couple times. And as COVID started kind of inching into our world, I brought him there a couple times a week. When it really hit hard, I called them. I said, could he stay there maybe a couple weeks till this blows over? Ha ha. And they said, sure, we can arrange for that, like a respite visit. Little did I know. Two weeks into, and, and he was pretty good about it. You know, I went to see him. And then literally two days after he was there, they said no visitors. I was kind of mortified, to say the least. And I luckily had kept my caregivers, who had been with Paul in the evenings, and asked them if they could go and be with him so he wouldn't be scared or wondering what was going on. And um, that they allowed because they were considered essential workers. So after a couple weeks, realizing this wasn't going away, and the COVID started spreading throughout the facility, I was in fear for my caregivers and my husband. I said, okay, I got to get you guys out of there. Let me think. I'm going to, you know, get back to you momentarily. I put them in a hotel to quarantine, I guess, for uh, a week it ended up being. And then I just called my caregiver, who I'd become quite close with, this wonderful woman. And I just was crying. I've run out of ideas. I don't know what to do. And I'm afraid to bring him home because I have my business, you know, running out of my house. I've got to protect my workers. So she took a long breath and then said, I'm going to take Mr. Paul home with me. I was like, what? She goes, I'm going to take him home with me. And let's just go from there. And uh, that's where my husband was until December of 2021. Wow. Boy, I bet there are people listening right now who want that caregiver cloned. That caregiver who still is in my life very much so. I think he is probably in some ways closer and more secure with her than me. She's an angel. She's a godsend. And I I feel like she's family, like she's a sister that I never, you know, a, a really good sister that I never had. A couple things happened at her house with, she's Filipino. She lived with her. There was a group of them living together, all family. And a couple of them came from the Philippines with two children. And you know how kids are. They're running around and screaming and playing hide and seek and making noise. And that really got to my husband, the noise. And he would get agitated and irritable, yelled at them. And it just wasn't good anymore. So that's when we decided to put him in a memory care facility. That's been a whole other story. But right now he's in a safe place. Uh, My caregiver, 
I've had to, I don't, I don't know what our time frame is, but basically from that December, he had an incident happen and he was hospitalized. He, he, I don't know if he fell, I wasn't there, but he went unconscious for about five minutes. They took him to emergency. He ended up being in a hospital for about 10 days, in which time he sort of forgot to walk, how to walk. And I had to figure out where to put him for rehab. Also, his medication got very messed up. And I decided to put him in a uh, another memory care facility that I found before the current one. It wasn't working out. And I ended up putting him in a psychiatric hospital that deals with geriatrics and medication. And it was wonderful. And he stayed there for about five weeks. Again, my caregiver would go see him because they didn't allow family and because she's an essential worker. And fast forward now, he's in a, he's been in and out of the hospital a few times since the beginning of the year for different things, all having to do with falling, balance, things that happen as the disease progresses. And now he's in a memory care facility. And I also, which is killing me, uh, have 24-7 care right now. You, You mentioned how close he was to the caregiver, but you wrote an article for the Maria Shriver Sunday paper. And I was touched by your description of a flash of a moment when you and Paul were you and Paul that you miss so much. Um, It's just a moment, an eye lock before he slipped away again. But then you spoke so confidently. If Paul knows nothing else, he knows that you are his, his rock, his home, his soulmate, even as he might not understand the words, the concepts, wife, anniversary, marriage, all that stuff. Yes. Does that knowledge get you through the sad times that you must have from time to time? You know, that's such a great question. I I don't know if it gets me through or makes me sadder. Mm. It's so bittersweet. You know, it's truly bittersweet. Yeah, I, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I allow myself to fall apart on a regular basis. And I do. I am not superwoman by any means. And, you know, those moments that I am able to connect with Paul are, you know, they're little drops of elixir, but, you know, then you're the one driving home by yourself and recalling those moments or when you're having a quiet moment yourself. Or for some reason, my phone, I, I do, I totally believe that the phones know what's going on and they listen to you because 
whenever I mention him, like some kind of a memory thing on my photos will come up of my Paul. And it's like, oh, Alexis can come in handy from time to time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a tough road to to uh, walk. There's a Maya Angelou quote that you probably know. I, I really like it. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made, how you made them, feel. them feel. And I think Absolutely. that could be one of the cornerstones of a relationship in Alzheimer's. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that holds true, good, bad, or indifferent. And that has helped me sometimes find people in some of these facilities who were not treating my husband as well as I would hope for. And because I know him and, and I can tell when he is responsive to somebody and someone makes him feel good. So, yeah, yeah. I, I still work with a couple of private clients and they couldn't tell you my name. I've been with them for a couple of years. They couldn't tell you my name. They couldn't tell you anything about me, but that feeling is there. They, they are happy absolutely. to see me. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I was so blown away when I wrote this piece, which I do every year. I, I try to write something. Um, I do blogs throughout the year, but when June comes along, I try to write something having to do with Alzheimer's and brain health because that's awareness month. And when I wrote this piece, I felt very compelled to send it to Maria. Uh, we've become friends and I, I just adore her and, uh, and, and so grateful for all the work she does. Anyway, I sent it to her and she was like, I'm sobbing. I need to put this in the Sunday paper. Can I publish this? I was so amazed at all the people that, I mean, I know, I don't know from all over who reached out to me and said, thank you for giving a voice to this. And it's sad that more isn't written about those moments it it, you know you read a lot about the 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 disease and and how devastating but just having uh, a moment to read something that is an authentic moment that happens in somebody's life who's going through this really seemed to resonate with so many and that was very moving to me yeah, I, I think just everybody could use that 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 personal moment where it's not about the disease. It's I mean not directly. It's, exactly. It's about yeah something just so personal. And I'll tell you, I don't know if you're familiar with Jolene Brakey, Brackey. No. Okay, her book, the the scene, the scene, <laughs> the moment uh, in the piece I wrote where. I'm with Paul and I had brought the piece of cake and we're eating and I'm, you know, being my my (laughs) normal self with a fork and he just goes and grabs it with his hand. I would have never, ever done that had it not been for her book. I give her full credit. 
She, her books have helped me through so much. She, or her book, uh, Finding Moments of Joy, it, it really tells you how to find those moments. And it was a moment of joy because there we were. I was being in his world. I was in his world and we both had fun, you know, for that moment. That's great. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to talk about music. Okay. I mentioned in the intro that you have a long list of accomplishments, uh, but Paul was also in the music industry, wasn't he? Yes. He was a music producer. Is that how how we met? Okay. I was just going to say, is that how you met? Yes. Can you share a little bit about your life pre-Alzheimer's? Like collective life? I'm trying to remember it. Uh, yeah. No, we, we, uh, we met through music. He did a demo for music demo for me of one of my songs. And we were kind of like together ever since then. And, um, you know, and I feel very lucky that, you know, he was, I, I consider him my soulmate. I still do. We had a great love story and a great, you know, fun time when the music business was just thriving and exciting. And it was, he was working all the time, having a lot of success in his career. And I was too. That was it. Our lives were just all about music. We had a studio in our home. He would travel to different places to produce different bands we had a fantastic life. I mean, what's better than music and being in love and having a good time? And and music still plays, I think, a, a, a tremendous role in his life. I, I'm going there insofar as you did write that Paul has music in his DNA. Absolutely. I, I, well, it, the research that I've read about shows that that's something that never disappears i mean i'm sure you've read those things too where and seen seen on youtube where people who haven't uttered a word or have been almost catatonic and you put headphones on them and they come to life and i uh i bought a serious radio for paul and it's in his room and i it's got five well, probably more, but I programmed five stations of all his favorite stuff from, you know, the Beatles to the Beach Boys, Bee Gees, Yacht Rock, Classic Rock. And, um, you know, you just press a button. He can't even do that anymore, but somebody can, his caregiver can press a button and it's right there. And he reacts, he sings along, he sometimes even remembers lyrics. He always knows he'll play air guitar or air drums or uh, it's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And early on when he was still able, I was looking for any kind of a music program. And I ran across this program called Music Men's Minds. And we became very involved with that program. And Carol Rosenstein, who founded it, her husband had uh, Alzheimer's and she formed a band around him. He played the piano and she formed a band called the Fifth Dementia. 
And, um, and then, you know, they allowed more members to be participate and singers and it became a whole thing. And, and, you know, in a way uh, during COVID, it almost, it became international. People were zooming in from all over the world and it's become quite a, quite a big organization, nonprofit organization. That's amazing. So, yeah, Paul, it's more difficult for him to be a part of it. Um, I encourage my caregiver to tune in when they meet three times a week, but it's harder for him to stay focused on it. My background was rec therapy. And, you know, you mentioned about having the, the radio programs on Sirius, you know, like to, to have that background of, of what was their past like, like what were their passions? Um, because it is as simple as a caregiver going in and just pushing a button. And absolutely. Yeah. And I found this radio, somebody turned me on to, I didn't even know it existed that you can uh, program. It has no commercials. It's just serious radio nonstop. So it was a wonderful find. You've touched on this a little bit. High profile people now are more and more going public with health issues, serious health issues. How was it a hard decision for you and Paul to sort of include a larger circle? I think it was much harder for him. I got to the point, you know, where I, I had to have the conversation with him. I can't, I can't live a lie. I, I can't keep pretending this isn't happening and you know, more and more when we were with people, things would happen if we would go to dinner with friends or a movie or whatever the situation to kind of fake it, if you will. Yeah. And I just, you know, I said, people are, I, I, I think you're going to be surprised. I hope if you come out, I think people are going to show you so much love and support. I would hope that would be what happens. And um, I sat down and wrote this article about what we were going through. And at the same time, I helped him compose a sort of coming out letter. And we, he, he came around and we posted it the same day. I posted it on HuffPost and he posted his on Facebook. It was overwhelming, overwhelming the amount of love and support that we got and, and people's response and reactions. And, you know, it's a very hard thing. I think for others, because it's not like, how's Paul doing? Is he better now? And you do lose a lot of people that you were close to sort of drift away. You know, I have close friends that still check in, but a lot of people, they're afraid of the disease and they don't know what to say. Kind of like when someone dies, you know, what do you say? 
but you know, I feel grateful that I do have a uh, circle of friends that aren't afraid and who do support me and Paul. And I'm, you know, just happy I have that. I'm sure at the time there was a lot of probably something resembling relief amongst your closest circle instead of like, what's going on with Paul? Oh, no, 100%. hundred yeah. percent. You know, you know, I had lots of, oh my God, I knew something was going on. I'm so sorry. You know, I had no idea. All of that. Yeah. But of course, the biggest relief, I think, was for Paul and I. You know, we could now go out to dinner run into somebody and I didn't have to be like talking for both of us and, and making excuses. And yeah. I want to ask you briefly about sort of the difference between early onset and later onset, but I know in my experience, older onset, the, the spouse doesn't always, the partner doesn't always know what to do. So they just compensate and compensate and they finally kill themselves. Because compensating is really hard work, as you probably experienced. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to be young enough, I guess, for, for lack of a better term, to say, this can't go on. You know, like we have a big enough circle, still the professional circle, if, as well as the friend circle, that, you know, like, you can't be doing that. Um, the changes are obvious. So let's get it out there. Is that so you're are you saying like what's the difference of well the i guess I, yeah i'm sort of giving a few things but what what is your experience too or do you know very much about the two like early versus later oh i know way too, way more than i'd like to both my parents so i mean if anybody should be worried i should uh both my parents late onset but nevertheless whether or not they had dementia or Alzheimer's, I, I don't know. But, you know, at that point, I know with my dad, my parents were divorced. My stepmom was very reluctant to talk about it, to hire any help. And as you sort of pointed out, she ended up getting cancer and dying. I think she wanted to die. I don't think she had the fight in her to fight her cancer or the will to live. Yeah, it's very sad. I think it's really harder for an older couple to maybe come out. I don't know why that is. And I'm just saying that off the top of my head. what I would imagine, but I urge anybody and everybody, young, middle-aged, old, everybody, seek out help. Get it into a support group, an Alzheimer's support group. There's lots of them um, through, you know, the local hospitals. For, For me here in California, we have the UCLA and the Alzheimer's Association there's just the Lisa Gibbons group. Um, there's lots of help out there and there's always someone ahead of you always. So they can sort of guide you through what's going to happen next. 
Yeah, I made a wonderful friend who uh, is older than me and her husband passed away from Alzheimer's recently. And she has been a godsend to me as far as guiding me through next steps. And I, you know, I cherish her. And, and uh, those are people you can meet through these support groups. You've got to get help. Nobody can do this alone. Nobody. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, so important. Franny, if I haven't plucked at your heartstrings enough, um, in one of your articles, you talked about love, how Alzheimer's has enhanced and broadened your definition of love. Can you speak to that just for a moment? If you don't mind, please. (laughs) Well, I mean, it, you know, there's all kinds of love. I mean, there's the, you know, love you have when you you meet somebody and you, you have a marriage and you have children and all of it. But I think the ultimate show of love and is, is when you care for somebody, when they're not there to give back that, you know, I mean, Paul does give back to me. But I, you know, it's, it's in those, like you say, in, from when we were talking in the beginning, you know, where we're taking a nap and he sort of instinctually puts his arm around me like we've done a million times. It's those moments. But I think it tests your capacity for love when you're dealing and caring for somebody. And 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 just you, there, it it also shows you that love comes from so many different places and so many unexpected places. That there's love all around you. You just have to be able to see it, seek it out. Yeah, I mean, this woman that helps me, my my caregiver. I mean, I I love her as much as I've ever loved anybody. I just. I, Yeah. I mean, so does that sort of answer your question? What I'm hearing is, you know, like even though the, maybe the tangibles change, you can still find the intangibles and, and just opening yourself up to, I guess the other inputs, like your caregiver, like you probably didn't even know her five years ago. Yeah. Did not. And, and yet now today, she's such a, an intrinsic part of your life. Absolutely. And, and, you know, taking advantage, it's like, you know, those moments where Paul's in my eyes lock or we're listening to, you know, uh, a song that we both love that we, you know, played a million times and we know all the lyrics and, and there's just that flash of a moment where you connect And this, you know, you just feel this love, like a cloud over you, you know, it just embraces you. Um, It might not be the love that you, that's a, that's a hug or, or, or what you would like it to be, but it is love. And, uh, you know, love has all different shapes and forms you know, I, I think sometimes being a caregiver, you know, you can get frustrated, irritable, 
especially if you don't have help and you miss out on those moments that like I'm talking about those little tiny magic moments that might give you some relief as well. I might add too that if, if you don't have help, you're, you're too exhausted to see them, to notice them. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> why I urge everybody. And I know not everyone can afford to get help. But there is, there are ways, there is help out there, even if it's a friend who you just honestly say, I need a few hours, I need an afternoon, you know, because people are always saying, what can I do for you? Please ask, what, what can I do for you? You have to ask, you have to say, here's what you can do for me. Stay with my husband for four hours. I need to go out. I need to take a walk. I need to, whatever it is, ask your children, your family. And probably I'm imagining that people, you know, like especially your closer circle, they're happy to do it if they just know what you want or what you need. They can step up to the plate, but, you know, just they, they don't know what to do until you specify you have to specify and a lot of people are embarrassed because they're like oh my god what if he this or what if she that you know because you don't know when somebody has alzheimer's are they going to have are they going to get agitated or something going to happen am i going to be embarrassed you know they're embarrassed but you have to toss that aside and you know one somebody said something to me when paul was first diagnosed that always stayed with me. She said, just because one person is sick does not mean that two have to die. And boy, I, that has stuck with me all these years. And I've passed it along to many people. Now you've just passed it on to the audience. I appreciate that. There you go. I think what I'm appreciating most about, I've only got one more question to ask you, but what sure. I'm, actually, I've got two, I'm lying to you. What I'm appreciating most is your emphasis on the moments of joy. You know, even if there's hours of sadness or anger or frustration, those moments are, of joy are just huge. Huge, huge. Especially when you're in love with somebody or have been in love with somebody, you know, uh, you treasure, like you, 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 you know, you fantasize that you could have that moment again. And then all of a sudden you get that moment. If you're aware, if you're not too tired, if you're in the moment, if you're, you know, as you say, yeah, it, it's like a, a fleeting butterfly. But if you can grab it, you know, it's very, very satisfying, very bittersweet. And you may cry for an hour afterwards remembering, you know, that moment. But that's good because crying is a great release. And any kind of feeling, emotional feeling is, is I feel welcome and, and to be taken advantage of. Just sticking with music for a minute, I guess it's like variations on a theme, like those moments may not be the ones you knew, 
but they're there and they're they're very clear. It's your and precious yeah. and precious, very precious. Franny, what haven't I asked you about Alzheimer's, early onset, heartache adjustments that you want our listeners to know, um, and especially those listeners who maybe are just starting this path themselves. Well, if somebody is just starting this path, I, I guess to everything, you, you, you know, to answer to all of that is try to be good to yourself. And believe me, I don't always know what that means. Like people say, I, I would say that's one of the top things people say to me. Don't forget to take care of yourself. What does that mean? You know, I don't know a hundred percent, but I guess it means taking a walk, keeping up with your friends, eating well, exercising, you know, just attending to your basic needs, allowing yourself to have moments of falling apart, crying, feeling your feelings, and ask for help. Ask for help. I would say that's been one of the hardest things for me. And when I do ask for help, I'm always surprised at what, even if you ask in the air, even, you know, I'm not a very religious person, but I'm very spiritual. And sometimes I'll just say, please help me get through this, you know, to the air, you know, to the the higher beings, (laughs) please help me. Give me a sign. Tell me what to do next. And uh, yeah, somebody needs to write a, 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 a book or a paper about what it means to take good care of yourself. Cause I would like to know that. <laughs> I, you know, quite honestly, I think it's different for every person out there, you know, so yeah. whatever sort of brings the shoulders down and makes you feel good and takes care of the health. I mean, that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. And of course my work, I mean, when Paul was diagnosed, I started a new business and I think the, whatever higher beings must have led me in that direction because it keeps me so busy and has been so fulfilling to me in so many ways and surrounds me by so many wonderful people. If I didn't have that. Okay. Yeah. You've given me the perfect segue because before we close, I want to talk about you again for a moment (laughs) because inquiring minds need to know, and our audience is mostly women. What is the magic pant? (laughs) You know, the magic pant, I was doing all of these fundraiser for my son's school and, and, you know, things along the way. They were always asking the parents if they would help out, you know, to raise money for the school. And I, for a long time, was able to do really cool stuff, like get a uh, autographed guitar from Cheryl Crow or Ringo's drumsticks or, you know, things like that. And when I ran out of things, I started doing these boutiques where I would go shopping, which I love to do, and get all this stuff and sell it uh, at the school. And they would always sell out. 
And one day I, I'd always been searching for the perfect pant because I don't have the perfect figure. So I wanted something that would be flattering. And I ran across this pant that I sort of liked and I took it home and I cut it up and started playing around with it to make it what I envisioned as a perfect pant for me, which led to just crazy stuff like ordering a thousand yards of fabric and finding sewers and pattern makers and cutters and getting into a whole world that I knew nothing about, which was great to keep me occupied. And I developed what I consider, you know, the perfect black pant. And a friend of mine who introduced me to my manufacturer uh, said, when they're ready, I want the first pair. So I sent them to her. And the woman she works with saw them and said, oh, I want a pair. So I sent her a pair. She happened to be best friends with Adam Glassman, who is Oprah's stylist. And she took a selfie and she sent it to him and said, okay, these are my favorite black pants I've ever had. And he said to her, send them to me. I want to see them. So I I thought the whole thing was a joke. I couldn't believe it. I sent a pair of pants to Adam Glassman through my friend and that was it. I never heard another thing. So I sort of forgot about it till January. And then this would have been maybe like August or September. Then in January, I got a call from my friend and she said, oh my God, I'm standing in line at Costco. I was leafing through Oprah magazine and, and your, your pants are in there and they've dubbed them the magic pant. I'm like, what? (laughs) And that is how the magic pant was born. The rest is fashion history. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Okay. So So. we're all going to go buy the magic pant now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And well, I'm not asking you about your figure, but you know, as we all get older, you know, I've got a few more lumps in places. I didn't used to have lumps and stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, They smooth you out. They actually come up to your waist. So you don't have like a spare tire (laughs) You kind of, it pulls over that. It sort of kind of pulls everything together and it's comfortable. It's comfortable. That's the main thing, comfort. And now we've expanded. We have all different styles and different kinds of pants to, uh, you know, accommodate everybody. So. Yeah, yeah, I had a great time on that website. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, speaking of websites, um, if people want to learn more about Franny Goldie, um, I have the two Maria Shriver articles, the links, and then, of course, there's FrannyGoldie.com. Is there anywhere else you want to direct listeners? I would like to find out about the book you talked about. Oh, you know what? You can always send it to me. Or do you have it handy? I do. Oh, and I have my camera on, so I'm even going to get a look at it. I never go anywhere without this book. I have turned more people onto this book and I'd be happy to send you. I have about 12 copies. Wow. Oh, I just lost you again. 
Creating Moments of Joy by Jolene Brackey. And you can also, I feel like I'm, uh, whatchamacallit, um, promoting her. I, I've never met her in my life. But, but if I, the book was that helpful to you, it's oh going to be helpful to other people. It is. I, I gave it to all the caregivers at the memory care. That's why I have so many copies. It is. It's extraordinary. It's one of the best. And I have read so many books on this journey. This is by far the best book that I've ever read, ever on the subject of how to communicate and how to find those moments with your loved one, whether it's your mother, your father, your grandparent, your spouse. It's it's an amazing, amazing book. Great. Okay. And the listeners know that I put all sorts of links in show notes and on the website. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that she had signed this book for me. I mailed away for it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And of course she does have a chapter on music does wonders. Excellent. So highly recommend this. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Good especially if somebody is new to the journey and they're terrified, this book will help them get through. Definitely. Okay. I'll add that to the, to the links for sure. Listeners, Franny was so candid today and I really do appreciate that. Any dementia diagnosis can be scary. It's a windy road with no real map and there's certainly no jumping off spots. If you have thoughts on today's show, please talk to us. If you're listening at twoboomerwomen.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and leave comments there. We can be found at Apple or Spotify, Stitcher. Most places a person would listen to podcasts. Feel free to leave comments there and leave stars and reviews. They help us grow. Before you go, hit the subscribe or follow button and you'll be notified about future interviews with more of my great guests. And share this episode with a few friends. Any sort of dementia can be a stealthy predator. And none of us knows who's next. Could be us, could be someone we love. And Franny really showed us it isn't all darkness and gloom. As time goes by, there may only be flashes of light, but they are bright and beautiful for that moment. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or know someone who would be a great guest, there's an application form at the website. Franny Goldie, thank you so much for being my guest on Two Boomer Women today. And really emphasizing that there can be growth and love, even as the world becomes smaller and more distant. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Have a great rest of week. You too. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm.